Why don't we pray? Pray for the word. Let's pray for the uh, Holy Spirit to continue his, his outreach. Lord, we thank you uh, that you have um, permitted us to partner with you in sharing the good news with people. Lord, we pray for the many who yesterday received uh, the DVD with the gospel. And we ask you, Lord, to move them and prompt them to view it. And then, Lord, we know that only you can open their hearts. But we do pray that you would remove the veil from their eyes. They would understand your great love and mercy. They would understand the cross. They would understand your victory over sin and death through your resurrection. Lord, we ask that um, even, uh, even now you would be convicting, enlightening, drawing uh, men and women and children to you. We want to pray for this community near us, Lord, of older people. Lord, we know um, that their days are coming to an end. And we want them to know your love and your mercy. So we pray for them even now before we go and share the gospel with them, that you'd be moving in their hearts, that you would be moving them to be pondering the biggest question. And you would move them to seek you and then find you. Just thank you, Lord, that you have sought us out and you have saved us. And um, I ask that today as we look at your word, we would just gain an even deeper appreciation of what you have done for us. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Mark chapter 2. In Mark chapter 2, we're going to start reading in verse 1. It says, And again, he, of course meaning Jesus, entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together, so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Arise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. (laughs) Amen. 
<laughs> Today I want to look at uh, two, two main points. One is the faith of those who brought the paralytic to Jesus. And then secondly, Jesus' uh, pronouncement of forgiveness on this man. Uh, first, let's look at the, the faith. We could call it the faith of the four, right? The faithful four, the faithful friends. Um, the as we as you think about this passage, it's it's interesting because the Mark gives us all these little details. Which if we if we slow down and meditate and read the text, that, that makes this thing come to life. Um, and so here's a guy who. Uh, I think the King James says he has palsy, New King James, paralytic. He couldn't walk. We don't, he was paralyzed to some degree. We don't know how much. And so he's being brought on a bed. Now, when we think of a bed, we think of a big, you know, wooden structure, right? But this was probably, um, perhaps some, an animal skin of some kind, um, that he was carried on, not not what we think of as a bed, right? So they come to the to the house, and when they arrive at the house, and some people believe that this was Peter's house, um, there, there's a massive crowd there. So they, we don't know how far they came, but it's clear that people were coming from all around. So they could have walked miles. They could have carried this guy a long way. On this bed, this animal skin, this sheet, whatever it was. And then they get to the door, and lo and behold, they can't get in. That's what you call a bummer. Right? Now, they knew Jesus was there, and they had heard that Jesus could heal people. That's why they came. So they, were, they demonstrated their faith by coming. But when they got to the place where they got close to Jesus, they encountered obstacles. And the obstacle was all the other people that were there wanting to be healed. So they couldn't get in through the door. So what did they do? Well, let me tell you what they didn't do first. They didn't turn around and walk away. They didn't say, oh, well, we tried. But there was a crowd there. So, you know, hey, hey, dude, sorry, we tried. No, in spite of obstacles, in spite of the crowd... They devised the means by which to get this man, their friend, to get their friend into the presence of Jesus. So what do they do? They devise a plan, a scheme, and they climb up on the outside of the house. Now, the homes in, in this time, of course, were very different than what we think of as a home here. And it wouldn't be uncommon for there to be a ladder on the outside of a home. And often homes had an upper and a lower Room. If you remember, Jesus' last supper was where? In an upper room, right? Not a lower room, an upper room. So they have two-story houses. So uh, it was not uncommon for there to be a ladder or some kind of means by which to climb up into the upper room so you didn't have to go through the main room or the main part of the house to get upstairs. And even today, we have some homes like this where you can get access either to a basement directly or to an upper room. Less so now, but in the older homes, you go into Old Town, you look at some of these homes, there will be a stairwell in the back to get to the upper room without going through the main room. Same same idea. So they climb up these stairs. Now, by the way, this isn't their house. This is not their house. Okay? So they climb up, 
to the roof of the house, and the it w- w- in these kind of homes there would be an, some sort of aperture, a door, a, a means of getting from the top to the going down. I mean, what's the point of having the stairs up if you can't get back down, right? So you could go from the upper room to the lower room on the inside as well as the outside. The problem was the hole wasn't big enough for five people to get through. Especially with with one person stretched out on some type of, you know, bed. So what did they do? They say, oh, well, well, we made it this far. We got close to Jesus. We almost got there. We're in really close. We got even got closer than a lot of the crowd. We're right above them, and we can look down. We can look down through the hole. We can see Jesus down there teaching, but the hole's not big enough. Got to go home. Did they do that? No, they didn't do that. What did they? Do? What, what, what did they do? They start tearing the roof apart. This wasn't their house, <laughs> right? Now, one commentator pointed out that. Uh, by the way, uh, the Gospel of Mark, we have no evidence that Mark was one of the twelve, right? So, or even that he was in an inner circle of any kind. So, what's the apostolic authority for Mark's Gospel? The church tradition is that Mark was led to Christ by Peter, and that what we have here is really the Gospel of Peter. The Gospel is dictated by Peter to Mark that Mark wrote. And so... Um, so we get these interesting details, and that's why some commentators think that this was Peter's house. So Peter's laying, by the way, here's what happened when the paralytic showed up. They tore my house apart. <laughs> They're tearing my roof up to get in my house to see Jesus. And that's exactly what they did. They tore the roof apart, and then they lowered the paralytic down into the presence of Jesus. And then Jesus... Um, well, let's read it, verse 4. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. Um, uh, Mark, excuse me, Luke says they basically removed the tiles. They tore the roof apart. This is what happened. So when they had broken through, like thieves, right? When they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. And then when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, let me ask you this. Did, was there any profession of faith? Did anybody, the, is it recorded that any of the four or the man himself said, Jesus, I believe. Did, 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 did anybody, is it recorded that any of the four or the paralytic asked Jesus to even heal the man? Then how did Jesus know? How did he know of their faith? By their actions. By their determination to get near to Jesus. And so we see, uh, first, the first lesson, if you will, about faith is that faith is bold and faith is courageous. Faith, faith isn't turned back by obstacles. If you remember Jesus, when he was teaching about faith in a different context, he said, if you have faith as the grain of a mustard seed, which is pretty little, you can move mountains. Now, in Scripture, mountains are symbolic of obstacles. Okay, obstacles. If you have faith, you can remove obstacles. Now, we tend to think of that as if we're saying, Lord, I believe God removed that thing. And then you open your eyes and it's supposed to be gone. That's not what he's saying. 
He's saying, if you have faith, you will remove the obstacle. They had faith. And because of their faith, they overcame the obstacle of the crowd. They overcame the obstacle of carrying a man up uh, uh, this ladder, external ladder. The obstacle of the roof, they tore it apart. The obstacle of lowering him. All of this was dangerous. And by the way, I can just imagine the scene as they're tearing the roof apart. Jesus is saying, blessed are those, dirt's falling on his head. Right? So what they did was, was, was bold... It was daring. It was even, guess what? It was a little bit inappropriate. But that's what faith is. That's what faith causes you to do. Faith doesn't cause you to pray a prayer and then do nothing. Faith moves you to act. And as you are walking and moving in faith, you are overcoming the obstacles. You are removing them by faith. Because your faith is moving you. So we see that faith is bold, it's courageous, but another thing we see is that faith is vicarious or communal. What do I mean by that? Well, notice this in the, in the text, which I'm sure you've already noticed, but I want to point it out. In verse 5, after the man comes down, it says that when Jesus saw their faith, it doesn't say when Jesus saw his faith. But their faith. Now, the question is, did, did they believe and he didn't? Or did he believe with them? They all believed, so the four, and the, so really the five of them really all believed? Well, of course, the text doesn't tell us. I believe, get it? I believe the man believed. I believe that the man had faith. And the reason I believe that is because he consented to this dangerous thing they were doing to him. Now granted, being a paralytic, especially in those days, he didn't have a lot of options. So him consenting may have been like, whatever guys, if you think it's going to help, fine. But I don't, I'm a little suspicious that probably wasn't his attitude. I think his attitude was probably one of faith. Hey, can you guys get me to Jesus? I can't walk, but can you get me to Jesus? I've heard he's in town. And being faithful friends, they said, sure, we'll bring you to Jesus. And I believe that they were willing to go through the labor of, of carrying him to Jesus, carrying him up up the uh, side of the house, lowering him down, tearing up the roof, lowering him down. All of that was involved in these expressions of faith. They were willing to do this because they also believed. So Jesus looks at their faith and we see this in other passages in Scripture. You know, there's a teaching out there today which says, if you have enough faith, you can be healed. Or, if you have enough faith, you can receive this blessing or that blessing from God. And I, had, I know someone who recently was told by a friend that the reason they weren't healed was because they, meaning that individual, did not have enough faith. The irony is, at the same time, they were saying that I believe it's God's will for everyone to be healed at all times. So they're saying, I believe it's God's will for you to be healed. But you have to have the faith. Um, That's not scriptural. Not because individual faith isn't important. But because what we see in scripture is both, uh, 
we see a variety of situations throughout the Gospels where sometimes the individual who needs the healing is the one expressing faith. Right? And other times it's someone who cares about them expressing faith. And in some cases, I don't even think the individual who got restored even knew that someone else was interceding for them to Jesus. Because in some cases, uh, the individual was far away. Uh, one man comes to Jesus, my daughter's on her deathbed. Now, do you think his daughter was at home praying, Jesus, heal me? She was probably not even conscious, right? So it was his faith that Jesus honored, and his faith resulted in her being healed. In a similar case here. Their faith was demonstrated by all the trouble they went through to bring this man to Jesus. And Jesus honored their faith and he restored the man. And so this shows that our faith can be at times vicarious. That is to say, we can believe for someone else when they can't believe. So it is, it is I believe, very uh, dangerous, really, to... Lay on someone, especially someone who's afflicted either mentally or emotionally or even physically, to lay on them, well, you would be better if you believed. I think that's a a form of religious shaming, is what that is. Well, my question is, well, where's your faith, oh healer? Where's your faith? Right? I've prayed over many people and I've seen many people healed over the years. But it's not, often it's not who, clear who in the room is really believing and who's receiving, the, who God's really responding to. Sometimes it's the person who's, who's ill and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's someone else who's praying. So we need to believe not only for ourselves, but we need to believe for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can pray and intercede for them. And this is a beautiful, a beautiful picture in, in the flesh of intercession. Because intercession is when you carry someone to Jesus in prayer. You bring them to Jesus so that, so that Jesus then touches them, if you will. Jesus heals them. Jesus restores them. Jesus ministers to them. But you are doing the labor. You are doing the carrying in prayer. And there's obstacles. Intercessory, intercessory prayer is really hard work. Amen? It's hard work. So there's a communal aspect to our faith where we can, we can bless other people by our faith and believing in their stead when they are struggling with their faith. Now having said that, there's one thing we can never do. I mean, we cannot, by our faith, make somebody else believe. And although I believe that we can pray for someone in faith and see them healed, we cannot make someone receive the gospel. This is one of the tricky things about intercessory prayer. Because when you pray for someone to come to Christ, what are you really praying? Are you asking God to manipulate their will? I mean, what's really happening there? And that could be a whole sermon or more. But the point is, is that at some point, in someone's, in, in all of our labor for them in intercessory prayer, when it comes to the gospel, to receiving Christ, 
they will have to make that decision. Now, I believe that we can remove many of the obstacles through our own prayers and through intercession. Um, when I came to Christ, I found out after I, after I got saved that there had been a whole church praying for me for over a year. And as I look back on my, on my conversion experience, I could see how I was softening, you know, to the gospel over time. And how God was drawing me to himself. And I believe that their prayers were, were just like these four men. I was a paralytic, spiritually, right? I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I couldn't get up and walk to Jesus. But I was being carried by people's prayers. And God answered those prayers, and here I am today, and you're stuck with me. (laughs) But we can do that for people, amen? Amen. Through our faith. Through our faith. So faith is uh, bold. It's courageous. Faith is uh, vicarious. But faith is also um, industrious. And inventive. Uh, you know, we've already commented on the, the the trouble, the means by which these guys went through to get their friend into the presence of Jesus, and there was there were all kinds of obstacles presented to them. At any point along the way, they could have stopped. And from a human point of view, I said, "Well, it's understandable that they didn't they didn't do what they did." It's understandable they didn't climb the roof. It's understandable they didn't tear the roof apart. It's all understandable, right? But faith, are you listening? Faith finds a way. Faith finds a way. When you really believe, you'll find a way. Faith does not take no for an answer. Faith will persevere. Faith will move to action. And you'll hit an obstacle. Okay, well, we're going to figure out something else. Because that's what faith does. It is inventive. And faith works. Now let's talk a little bit, secondly, about forgiveness. So they bring G- they bring this man to Jesus. They, they haul him down. Dirt's flying everywhere. Jesus sees their faith in verse 5, and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Indeed, that is the question. They asked the right question. But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power or authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up his bed, went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So Jesus, uh, when he sees the man, you would think he was going to say this. He was going to say, son, 
be healed. Or son, stand up. That's not what he said. Jesus said, son, your sins have forgiven you. Who was talking about sins? He didn't ask to be forgiven. His friends didn't mention forgiveness. Nobody is talking about forgiveness. But Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus saw a greater need than his physical problem. Whoa. Hold on. Commercial. All right, we're back. All right. Jesus saw beyond the physical problem to a deeper spiritual need. And he addressed the real need. We often approach the Lord, we want a certain solution because we think we, think we understand the problem. Guess what? There's a different problem that he wants to address, right? So Jesus, knowing all things, as this text clearly shows, because he talk, it talks about him reason, seeing them reason in their hearts, addresses the fundamental problem with this man, and that is the problem of sin. Now, as we saw last week, there is a common notion in Jesus' day, and it's even around today in the church, that a particular affliction has a direct relationship with a particular sin, which is to say that if someone is ill or afflicted, then they must have sin in their lives. Okay, That is not true. It may be the case, but it may not be the case. Now, in one sense, all physical difficulties, illnesses, all of them are related to sin in the sense that they're all a result of the fall. Okay, so there's always that link. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the link that says, oh, because you are sick, you're a sinner. And of course, that was a common attitude with the Pharisees. Even Jesus' own followers... Uh, were were affected by this viewpoint. Uh, that's why, if you remember in Luke, when Jesus said, do you remember when the Tower of Siloam fell on those people and killed them? Do you think they were greater sinners than others? Well, he said that because they did think they were greater sinners than others. Because certainly God would not let that calamity happen to them if they were righteous. But not true. So, we don't know. <clears throat> I don't know. Maybe you know the secrets of people's hearts. I don't know. But God knows. And in this case, there was a link. A direct link, I believe. And that's why Jesus addressed the root problem in order to heal the man. So, Jesus says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, your version might read a little different. But uh, I think most versions say... Basically that, your sins are forgiven you. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. Can I just have your attention a few minutes? Okay. I want you to notice what he doesn't say. Look at your Bible, verse 5. He doesn't say, you are forgiven of your sins. He says, your sins are forgiven you. My daughter's looking at me like, what are you doing now? The object, you know, the subject... You know, subject-verb thing in, in grammar? Right? The subject of this sentence is not the man. The subject is the sins. The sins are forgiven. Not, he is forgiven. What? You're like, what are you talking about? That's what I said to the Holy Spirit when I was studying this. What are you talking about? <laughs> 
there's an important truth here. <clears throat> and it's based on our understanding of what forgiveness is. The word forgiveness can be translated many ways, and it is in the New Testament and even in the Old. The word forgiveness can be translated separate. Let's try that one. Your sins are separated from you. I like that. Isn't that good? It can be translated dismiss. Let's try this one. Your sins are dismissed from you. That's a good one. It can be translated canceled. Try that one. Your sins are canceled. Hallelujah. Now I think I'm beginning to understand why the subject of the sentence is the sins. Your sins are canceled. Now when we think of forgiveness, we think of having a Gracious disposition towards somebody. Right? Well, they sinned against you or offended you, so forgive them. In other words, don't be angry, be gracious. That's not what he's saying. He's saying something much more profound than this. Jesus is not saying, son, I am gracious toward you. Although he was. He's saying, son, your sin which is your root problem, or is it sins, I'm going to cancel them now. I'm going to remove them from you. I'm going to separate them from you. And this work can even be translated divorced. I love it. I am going to completely remove sins from you. Wow. Wow. Look at Colossians 2. I'm not splitting theological hairs. This is the heart of the gospel. And there's much confusion about the gospel today. You see, today we want to be nicer than God. Okay? And people say, hey, people hurt me, I forgive them. God, why can't God just do the same? Why do we need this blood stuff? Why do we need to talk about the cross? Atonement words. Yuck. As if God is some vengeful deity. Isn't it? Isn't it? Why can't he just be forgiving? Well, they're talking about why can't he have a gracious disposition? That's what they're saying. But they're not understanding this aspect of forgiveness. The cancellation of debt. Colossians 2. We're going to read the whole thing. For Verse 9. For in Him, Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Amen. Amen. And you, Christian, are complete in Him. Amen. Who is the head of all principality and power. Amen. In Him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead, meaning in the past, in your trespass, trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. Regeneration, be born again. Having forgiven you, what? 
having forgiven you what? All. All trespasses. Every sin you have ever committed, He has forgiven. How did He do this? Look at verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements which was against us, which was contrary to us. Paul is alluding to a fact that each one of us had a list, if you will, of our offenses. It was that, it was like a legal document, as if we were going to court and the charges were spelled out on a, on a legal document. And it says here that Jesus wiped out the handwriting. This term is, is significant because in, in these days, when they wrote on a, a piece of paper, or really probably vellum, animal skin, because of the nature of the ink, the ink didn't have an acid in it, so it wouldn't sink, bite into the paper. And so it was much easier to wipe it off. And that was a good thing because it was in short supply. So they could reuse the vellum or the paper, the papyrus that was written on. And they would wipe it off. And they would expunge the writing. So Paul, that's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the, the fact that a piece of vellum that had your offenses on it, all of your sins, your anger and your lust and your lying and your cheating and your your fornication and your adultery and, and all your, your self-love and even your self-hate, all of these things that were written against you, it says that Jesus, or God, through Jesus, literally took an eraser and he wiped it clean. Wiped it clean. Wiped it clean. That's forgiveness. That's why the subject of the sentence has to be our sins. He doesn't wipe me out. He wipes my offenses out. And as he wipes that slate clean, he makes me clean. Amen? And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. In what? In the cross. Through the cross, which looked like defeat, it was the moment of Jesus' victory. Because it was through the cross that he was expunging all of our offenses. He was wiping the vellum clean so that something else could be written on it. What did he write on our vellum? Not the word sinner. He wrote the word saint. He wrote the word beloved. He wrote the word my bride. He wrote the word forgiven, child, prince, princess, royal priesthood, holy nation. That's what he wrote on that paper. That's who we are. That's who we are. Now, I want to clarify something else about this. Why? Oh, let me show you another cool verse. Look at Revelation 7. I'll I'll try to wrap up soon. Look at Revelation 7. Verse, uh, man, this whole passage is good. Verse 9, 7, 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And they're crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne to worship God, saying, Amen. 
Blessing and glory and wisdom. Thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Then one of the elders answered and said to, said to me, now, I don't know who that guy was. It was probably Peter. He was, I mean, to open your mouth in this sitting setting, like, whoa, bold. Who are these arrayed in white robes and where do they come from? And they said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed the robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in this temple. And He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. And they shall hunger and, excuse me, they shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. And the sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And that word wipe away is the same word in Colossians. To wipe away. And it's the same word that Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are wiped away. Completely scrubbed from the record. The reason this is important is because the gospel isn't just God likes us. Or even that God loves us. The gospel is that we had a problem That needed fixing and we couldn't fix it. Okay? Now the reason God can't just overlook sin. Is because God doesn't have that option because he's God. He doesn't have that option. Imagine someone, uh, a judge is sitting uh, at the bench and a a case is presented before him. And he finds out that that the plaintiff, the person who is is being charged. No, that's the defendant, excuse me. The defendant is, is his son. Well, what's the judge going to do? Well, he, what we do in our law is he has to recuse himself, right? Because his, his relationship, his affection, his involvement with the person would sway his judgment. And so he has to be removed. Well, God, guess what? He can't be removed. It's, we live in a moral universe. There really are right things and wrong things. Now, we can disagree about what they are, but they're there. And whatever they are, we've done some of the wrong things. And as God's disposition might be to overlook in the sense that he wants to be gracious. But he has to do that in such a way that he fulfills his integrity. Which means he can't just overlook When you forgive somebody, the reality is you're not overlooking their offense or their sin. Not really. You're admitting it, but you're releasing it. You're acknowledging it, but you're releasing it. Forgiveness doesn't involve overlooking. That's not what it is. If there was any other way for us to be reconciled to God, to to come to God, apart from... The, the death of Jesus Christ, certainly God would have used that way. But there was no other way. The, the offense caused by our sins had to be dealt with, and that's what the cross was about. God can't just overlook sin, otherwise he would not be righteous. He wouldn't be righteous. So he deals with our sins... Not by simply overlooking, he deals with them by wiping them out. 
And he does it through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus took my sins upon himself. The handwriting of the ordinances that were against me, the list of my offenses, were nailed to the cross when Jesus was nailed there. So that my slate is clean. But it's not empty. Because written on my slate now, all the wonderful things I mentioned, I'm a child of God. I'm beloved. And what's really cool is in Revelation it says I have a new name that no one knows. And I don't even know it yet. But when I see the Lord, He's going to give it to me. And it's not going to be failure. Fool. Idiot. Sinner. Those are not the words of our Lord for His people. You may sin. But your sins, if you're a believer in Christ, have been wiped clean by the blood of Jesus. John tells us that if we confess our sins, what what does the Father do? Yeah, think about those words. He's faithful and just. It doesn't say he's merciful and kind. It doesn't say he's loving. He's faithful and just. To not forgive us now, based upon the blood of Christ would be unjust on God's part. It would be a violation of the covenant that we are in with Him. Because part of the covenant is is that by believing in Him, He promises that all of our sins will be wiped away. And indeed they are. Yes, we need to confess our sins. We need to acknowledge any transgressions before Him. We need to repent. We need to confess in order to restore any, any uh, broken relationship or in order to remove any psychological guilt. But nowhere in the New Testament are God's people called sinners. Do you know that? Now Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. And in one sense he might have been, but in another sense he wasn't. Because nowhere are we called sinners because we are not in that class anymore. We're in this group called the saints. We are the saints. There's a big difference between being a sinner who sins and being a saint who sins. Right? Our identity is in Christ. Our identity is that we are forgiven. Our identity is we are in God's family. We are adopted. We are beloved. And I could go on and on and on about all that we have in Christ. But Paul says in Colossians that we are complete in Him. And the more we understand that and the more we see that, the less power sin has over us. Because everything we need is in Jesus Christ. Okay, let's wrap up. Uh, So much more to say on this passage. But Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees freak out. Why? Because only God can forgive sins. And they were right. Only God can forgive sins. Now, Now, you have to understand... The reason I spend so much time talking about the nature of forgiveness here is that because I can forgive you if you sin against me. So in one sense, I can forgive sins, right? Am I right or not? This isn't a trick question. Yeah, okay. Then why do they say, and properly so, only God can, can forgive sins? Only God can wipe that sin out of the book, if you will. 
Because any sin against an individual is also a sin against God. I can say to you, I forgive you for what you did, but I cannot remove the guilt. I cannot remove the guilt you have before God for what you did. That's between you and God. That's what Jesus was addressing. Jesus can address that. Jesus wasn't saying, son, I forgive you for sinning against me in the sense of he offended Jesus or something. He was saying, I forgive you in the absolute sense. I release you of your sins. And so what he is doing is he is truly claiming a prerogative of God here. And the Pharisees understood that. I mean, I've had people tell me, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Right here he did. Right here he did. Because he claimed to do what only God can do. So he says, well, what's easier, to say you're forgiven or get up and walk? They're both equally easy to say, right? So, Jesus looks at the man and he says, get up and walk. He got walked. Everybody's amazed. Whoa! Now, I believe Jesus healed the man because he loved him and cared about him. But, as in the case of many of his miracles, they are object lessons, right? And Jesus says, in this case, specifically, I'm going to give you an object lesson. And he says here, notice this. Nine, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? What's easier? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. In other words, Jesus was saying, okay, I told this man that his sins are forgiven, now, at this point, the man was still lying there, right? Was he forgiven? Who knows? I mean, I think he was forgiven, but who knows? So Jesus, in order to demonstrate his authority in the spiritual realm, has him stand up and walk in the physical realm. And he even says, I'm doing this. I want you to know I have authority to forgive sins, and here's the proof. Boom. So he claimed a prerogative of God and then he demonstrated that he wasn't just making false claims, empty words, but that he backed it up by his authority in the physical realm. And he proved his deity right here. The man arose, he walked. When we have faith in the Lord, when Jesus Christ saves us from our sins, there will be demonstrable evidence. There will be a change. And it will be visible to those around us. I don't know if you've ever had the joy of leading someone to Christ, but I've seen people literally transform before my eyes. You can tell they're in darkness, and after you pray with them, there's a lot. They're different. You literally can see it. Lord is in the business of healing bodies and healing souls. And one more scripture, because we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Go to Matthew. I think that many of our ills, and I'll just mean physical ills, I mean our spiritual ills as well, our emotional ills, are rooted in the fact that even though we are professing Christians, and many of us know Christ, we still have a very shallow level, shallow understanding of our forgiveness. 
We're carrying guilt. We're walking around beating ourselves up. We have self-hatred and other things because we're failures. And this is all uh, um, a false gospel. It is not... uh, it is not the good news. It is not what God has promised us. In Matthew, we have an account of the what's often called the first, the Lord's Supper. In verse 26, we're going to take the elements in a moment. And it relates to our text in Mark. Verse 26, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it. And he gave it to the disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, or some translations say new covenant, which is shed for many. For what? For the remission of sins, says my version, same Greek word as forgiveness. For the forgiveness of sins, for the cancellation of sins, for the removal of sins. For the releasing of sins. For the divorcing of sins. As we take the the elements today, Jesus is telling us that this supper, which is, is symbolic of what he did on the cross, and what he did on the cross is he established a covenant with his people. And in that covenant, his blood guarantees that every one of our sins has been canceled. Say it again. Say it again. Every one of you, some of you don't believe this. Not really. Every one of your sins has been completely expunged. Every one of them. Not just a little bit wiped off and Jesus can say, oh, well, I still see that kind of faintly written on there. Completely removed from the record. Every one of our sins. The sins you committed this morning, the sins you committed last night, the sins you committed the day before and the day before, every one of your sins has been wiped clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the term of the covenant on his part. And what's the term of the covenant on ours? We have to believe. Because if you don't believe, you don't receive. If you don't believe, it doesn't matter if Jesus totally removed your sins. You will walk around in guilt. You will walk around in shame. You will walk around in self-hatred. Even though Jesus completely removed, canceled, expunged your sins from the record. It won't matter if you don't believe. You must believe. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I believe, kind of, but I'm struggling with that. Then here's my advice to you. Call four friends. And maybe you don't have four. Okay, call three. Okay, maybe you don't have three. Call two. Call these two. And say, you know what? I'm like the paralytic. I need you to, I need you to help me. I need you to help carry me to Jesus. Because I'm really struggling with this forgiveness thing. I'm really struggling with a sin that I'm in bondage to. I'm really struggling with, with self-hatred. I'm really struggling with guilt. Will you, will you carry me to Jesus? And if they're real friends, they will. And they'll intercede for you. And if 
They faithfully intercede in faith. They overcome the obstacles, the crowds, the roof. You'll hear Jesus say to you, child, your sins are canceled. Completely removed from you. That's what we're celebrating today. The complete dismissal of our sins and the cancellation of our debt. That is grace. Let's stand and pray. Lord, what can we say? Your your grace, your mercy, your love. But Lord, your broken body and shed blood, which were not only demonstrations of your love, but we're, we're, which were necessary so that we today, 2,000 years later, could know you and walk with you without guilt and without shame and without fear. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood. Thank you, Jesus, you disarmed principalities and powers. Thank you that you took our offenses and you nailed them to the cross. Thank you that you have completely expunged our sins. You've wiped them away completely. And Lord, that's what we are professing today as we take the bread and the wine. I pray that we would continually grow in our, the depth of our understanding that you have removed from us the guilt, the shame, the debt, the punishment of every one of our sins. And that we now have freedom and liberty and boldness and access to you and the Father because of that. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen.